the blessing of Your Word, the power of Your Word, how You have magnified Your Word, as the psalmist says, according to Your name. And it is the greatest judgment upon any people for You to withdraw Your Word, Your withdraw Your message. It is the greatest foolishness on the part of man to ignore Your Word, to substitute it with wood, hay, or stubble. Father, in our land we do see a drought. And that drought of the Word of God is creating a famine. A famine in the land. Churches that once proclaimed the Word of God have substituted many other things for the Word of God. Colleges and seminaries that once stood soundly and solidly on the Word of God have moved decidedly away from the Word of God. Counseling that used to be called Christian is now distinctively worldly. No longer using the Word of God as its base. Father, we pray today that as the Word of God is proclaimed and preached, that You would bless it. And that this morning in this room there will not be a famine but that there will be fruit and abundance in our heart because of the Word of God. May you honor it this morning. I pray that your spirit would move not only on the speaker, but even as importantly upon the hearer. And we ask this in the name of the incarnate Word, Jesus Christ. Amen. As I spent some time preparing this week for the message, I was reminded that Christianity is an either-or religion. It is either the most remarkable, incredible truths ever known upon the face of the earth, or it is the most pitiful, deceptive, and sorrowful religion and uh, subsequent followers that the world has ever known. It's either or. You really can't have it both ways. You can't just say it's kind of in the middle of the road. I mean, if Jesus uh, is not the Messiah, he was just a false Messiah, like scores of others, and if he was just put to death as an insurrectionist to the Romans, And that somewhere in Palestine today, there in some tomb, lay the bones of this man, Jesus. Then we are the most pitiful people on the face of the earth. We really are. Christianity is the most deceptive trick ever placed upon humanity. If this whole thing isn't true, if Jesus is not the Christ then us buying a building is a stupid thing to do. You coming here this morning is ridiculous. Giving money in the offering plate, going to seminary. I mean, the list goes on and on and on. I mean, it's terrible if it's not true of what Christianity is about. But if it is true, if Jesus is the Christ, the anointed, the anointed one of God, if he did suffer in our stead on the cross, 
and died, and if he was raised from the dead and is seated at the right hand of God to come again and reconcile all things to himself, then Christianity is the greatest truth in all the world. It's either or. It's not a little bit of both. It is either or. We, over the last seven weeks, have spent week after week, seven weeks, expounding one sentence in the Bible. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through verse 14. Seven weeks on one sentence that takes up almost 12 verses. And that sentence details the benefits, the blessings of what it means to be a Christian. Paul is so caught up in the great blessings of what it means to actually be a Christian that he doesn't stop to take a breath. He rambles on for 12 verses, constituting the largest sentence in the Greek language. And if we recap what we have studied over the last seven weeks, these benefits of being a Christian, we have been chosen by God in love. We have been pre-planned and ordained as children of God adopted into his family. We have been, as the text says, graciously received into the beloved. We've been bought from the slave market. We have been released from the penalty of our sin. We've been made his treasured possession, safely, securely sealed by his Holy Spirit. And that spirit given as a deposit, a down payment for the guarantee that he will complete what he's begun. So 12 verses, Paul has exclaimed the benefits, the blessings of what it means to be a Christian. And he says at verse 3, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Today, we're going to begin a passage of Scripture, verses 15 and all the way through verse 17, that really will go all the way to verse 23. It constitutes another sentence in the Greek language of 169 words. Have you ever tried to communicate in a sentence of 169 words? That is a huge sentence. And again, Paul is filled to the brim with something that he wants to say as he communicates the reality of being a Christian and living in the light of all the blessings that we have in Christ. And verses 15 through verse 23 begin to unpack this truth that will be reiterated now over the next several weeks, that these blessings that we have in Christ are ours now. They are ours. They're yours now. And that is in stark contrast to a lot of the theology that is going on today, the theology that says believers need a second blessing, that there is something more in the Christian life you need, that if you just fast long enough, hunger hard enough, long for it enough, then you'll receive this second work of God's Spirit and there'll be something wonderful that'll happen in your life. Paul says, nope, in these next verses, these are yours now. This stands in stark contrast to the health and wealth 
prosperity gospel that says there's all these unclaimed blessings out there, and if you just had enough faith, God would give you these blessings. And Paul says, no, you have these blessings now. It stands in contrast to the dominion theology out there that says you need to reign with Christ today. You need to cast out the demons of poverty, the demons of sickness, and you need to be healthy and you need to take control of your life. This is the kind of life that you need to live. Paul will begin to tell us that these truths of these blessings in Christ are ours and they are ours now. Ephesians 1 says every spiritual blessing we've been blessed with. Every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies. That means these blessings are far greater than any physical wealth or health that you could get. These blessings are yours even if you're sick or poor. These blessings are yours if you are in Christ. I want to read verses 15 through 17 this morning. It says, Paul says in verse 15 of chapter 1, For this reason, I too, having heard of the faith, having heard of the faith in the Lord Jesus, which exists among you and your love for all the saints, do not cease giving thanks for you while making mention of you in my prayers that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the father of glory, may give to you a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. I'm going to divide this passage in three ways. First, we will see in verse 15 that Paul hears a report. And that report, in Paul's mind, inseparably links the Ephesians to the blessings that he has just uh, reiterated in the previous verses. Then Paul has a response to that report that he hears. And I don't think we're going to make it there today, but finally we will see Paul's request that he makes on behalf of the Ephesians. So that's where we're going to head this morning. The the report, a response, and doubtfully the request this morning. Let's look at this report, verse 15. For this reason, I too, having heard of the faith in the Lord Jesus which exists among you and your love for all the saints... Paul is obviously not in Ephesus. He's probably in some under house arrest somewhere. He's heard a report about the Ephesians. And that report, if you will, if you'll pardon the expression, stands as the twin towers of Christian assurance. He says, I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and your love for all the saints. And that report, in Paul's mind, inseparably, unmistakably links the Ephesians to the blessings which he has just reiterated in the previous verses. They are yours. Having heard of the faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, it is faith in the Lord Jesus Christ that results in salvation. It is the agency by which we are saved. Paul says, I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And then he says, and your love for all the saints. Love demonstrates the result of faith. It demonstrates what has happened in salvation. These two towers, this faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and love for the brethren, are inseparable links, are 
unmistakable assurances and evidences of salvation. Now, I ask you to look in your own life. When we talk about faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, we are not talking about some mental assent that, oh, yes, I know that Jesus lived and died. Faith is reliance, dependence, confidence, and trust. Paul says in Philippians chapter 3, we are those who put no confidence in the flesh. Our confidence is in the work of what Jesus Christ has done. Our hope, our trust is in the completed work of Jesus Christ on the cross. That is the, the way of salvation. Faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And then he says, love for all the brethren. Love for all the saints. This is an evidence, an unmistakable evidence, an uh, absolutely conclusive evidence in the scriptures of someone who is truly redeemed. They have a love for the brethren. And if we look at these two twin towers, it's interesting what Paul does not say. Because in his mind, these two things are unmistakable identifiers. He doesn't talk about baptism. He doesn't talk about Lord's Supper. He doesn't talk about prayer or reading the Bible or anything else. But he says, I've heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and the love that you have for the brethren. Now, the Bible says very clearly in the book of James that if you have true faith, you will have works. To believe that Jesus is the Christ To believe that his sacrifice is sufficient for your sins will produce in you a change of behavior. It will will produce within you works. You are not saved by works. You are saved by faith. But those who believe act differently. Someone once asked me after going through that passage of Scripture in James chapter 2 where it talks about Faith without works is dead. They, they asked me, they said, what are the works of a Christian? And this, that was an excellent question. I mean, if someone is truly wanting to look at their life, trying to wrestle with the, the very question, am I a Christian? It is a very valid question. What are the works of a Christian? What are the things that a Christian does? I want to tell you, the Bible answers it very clearly and very straightforwardly. The works that a Christian does are the works rooted in love. Love is the work, and love for the brethren is the demonstration of faith in Christ. And if you go back to that passage in James, where where James is talking about someone who says they have faith, that they have no works, what is the illustration that he uses? If a brother or sister comes to you naked and hungry and knocks on your door and you say, oh, be warm and be filled and go in peace, there's there's no faith there. There's no works there. But someone that is saved sees his brother in need, gives to him, demonstrate love. You look in Scripture and you find this evidence of love unmistakably throughout the Scriptures. In 1 Corinthians chapter 13, the great love chapter, Paul argues to the Corinthians, you can do all kinds of works. You could give your body to be burned. You could be a great evangelist. You could be a great teacher. You could do all kinds of things, but if you don't have love, it's nothing. You see, the works of a Christian are works rooted in love. 
In John chapter 13, love is the new commandment. Jesus said, this is the new commandment that I give you. Love one another as I have loved you. And he demonstrated that kind of love by washing the disciples' feet. It is a love that serves the brethren. John chapter 15, Jesus said, you need to abide in me. Because if you don't abide in me, you cannot bear fruit. And what is the fruit in John 15? It is loving the brethren. Read the passage. All throughout Scripture. First John chapter 3, verse 23. John says, this is his commandment. That we believe in the name of his Son, Jesus Christ. And that we love one another. These are the twin towers of Christian assurance. Faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and love for the brethren. Now, I ask you this morning, is there evidence of love for the brethren in your life? I don't know what the report was that Paul heard, but he heard something. And he says, I have heard of your faith in Christ and your love for all the saints. There was a caring. There was a concern among them for the body. This love is not just going to church. It is an an intimacy, an acquaintance, a, a bond with the body of Christ. It is characterized by serving the body of Christ. Many people think that going to Christian, going to church is a sign of, of being a Christian. There are scores, countless people that go to church and are as lost as a goose. A believer in Jesus Christ has love for the brethren. He has an affinity to his Christian brother and Christian sinner, uh, sister. Sinner. That's a good word, too, because that's what they are. We are. There is a love there. It is part and parcel of being a Christian. Martin Lloyd-Jones recounted that uh, he was a, a great pastor a generation ago in England. And he recounted that he was frequently attacked by the devil in regards to the assurance of his salvation. I don't, he didn't get into detail of how, but often he said that Satan would assail him and bring doubts about his, his salvation. And he said that he would often reply in almost an imaginary conversation with the devil, Ah, but I love the brethren. To which he said the devil never had a reply. Oh, I'm, you have all kinds of things against me, Satan, my, this accusing adversary, but I love the brethren. To which he said he had no reply. I love the brethren. That is an evidence of scripture, uh, uh, an evidence of Christian, being a Christian clearly all throughout scripture. Love the brethren. Are you serving the body? Are you Involved with the body? Are you giving to the body? Paul heard the report. Notice what he says. They had a love for all the saints. A love for all the saints. I know people who, uh, and I'm thankful they do, they love the pastor. There are people who go around and they go to a particular church because they like the pastor. But that's not the mark of a believer necessarily. All the saints. A love for the brethren. I know some people who love great men of God. 
They follow men like John MacArthur. They love John MacArthur. They love John Piper. They love Martin Lloyd-Jones. They love Jonathan Edwards. But that's not necessarily a mark of being a Christian. It's love for the brethren. I know people who love a Christian father or a Christian mother. But Paul said they had a love for all the saints. I want you to look at 1 John for a moment. I want you to see a truth behind this. 1 John chapter 2. I read this and I was a little bit startled, a little bit convicted. I was set to examine my own life. 1 John chapter 2. John says this on several occasions throughout this epistle. Verse 11. 1 John chapter 2, verse 11. I'm going to read verse 9. I'll start with verse The one who says he is in the light and yet hates his brother, singular, is in the darkness until now. The one who loves his brother abides in the light and there is no cause for stumbling in him. But the one who hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness. In my mind, I've often taken passages of Scripture like this and I've substituted hates the brethren. Just hates the church. Doesn't want to have anything to do with the church. But that's not what John says. He says hates the brother. I find it to be evidence in Scripture that it is impossible for a child of God to hate another child of God. Now that puts, that puts some muscle on this. John says it is impossible for a Christian man who professes to be a Christian to hate a brother. He says it later on in chapter 4, in verse 20. If someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For the one who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. There may be disagreements in the body. There may be divisions in the body. But I'm going to say from Scripture that a believer cannot hate another believer. Paul saw in the Ephesians a love that they had for all the saints. The saints in Ephesus the saints that were throughout the Roman Empire, there was a love for the brethren. I want to ask you this morning, is there evidences of your, in your life of love for the brethren? These are the twin towers of Christian assurance. Love for the brethren. Paul said he heard this report. Now, I want us to look at the response of this report. Paul, after hearing this report, He says in verse 15, For this reason I too, having heard of the faith in the Lord Jesus which exists among you, and your love for all the saints, do not cease giving thanks for you. For this reason, he says in verse 15, he he takes and with those few words, he summarizes all the blessings that he's just reiterated. He says, now for this reason, when I heard of your faith, And of your love, I couldn't stop giving thanks. 
the response to the report was one of thanksgiving, one of rejoicing and joy and gratitude on the heart of the Apostle Paul. When he heard that the Ephesians were inseparably, unmistakably linked to these blessings, he rejoiced with joyous gratitude. Now, on the surface, this may not seem like a big deal, but it really caused me a lot of questions, a lot of soul searching. Because if you look at it closely, it is a big deal. And there is something going on here. Paul says, after hearing this report, he literally says, I can't stop thinking, thanking God. I can't stop praising and thanking God for what's going on in your life. Now, that's that's pretty amazing. Now, if this was just a one time occurrence, it would be one thing and we could kind of just gloss over it. But it's not really a one time occurrence in eight different epistles that Paul writes. He says almost this exact same thing. He says to the Romans, I thank God always for you. He says to the Corinthians, I thank God for you. He says to the Ephesians. He says to the Philippians. He says to the Colossians. He says to the Thessalonians in the first and the second letter, I thank God always for you. Continually for you. Now, you still may not think, well, that's no big deal. But I want to ask you something. How much of the last week... Have you spent thanking God for the spiritual development of other believers? I had to ask myself that. Here is a man who spends an incessant amount of time in his prayer life thanking God for the spiritual progress and development of other believers. And I wondered, I wanted to know what was the significance of that. Is this just hyperbole? I mean, is Paul just saying kind of like a greeting? Hi, how are you? Kind of a thing. We don't really care. How are you? Is he just just kind of saying this as a greeting, saying I'm always thankful for you? Or is the Apostle Paul genuine and saying, I thank God always for you? I'm convinced it's genuine. And I wanted to know why. Why was Paul so full of gratitude towards the spiritual development and progress not only of the Ephesians, but of all those that he labored among. And as I begin to phrase it in that way, I answered my own question. For I came to realize Paul had a spiritual investment. He was vested spiritually in these people. He had been laboring diligently among them. And when he began to see fruit, it caused great joy and gratitude in his life. I then remembered a verse in the third epistle of John where he writes this. I have no greater joy than to know my children are walking in the truth. And I realized what is going on. That those who have a vested spiritual interest in a people or in a person who labor. When I say vested interest, I mean when there is 
deep concern for another's spiritual well-being, when there is intense prayer and fasting and discipleship and witnessing and teaching going on, there develops an intense interest in the spiritual well-being of that person. Labor is being is taking place. And when they begin to see fruit in that life, it results in un, unparalleled joy in the Christian life. And I begin to feel sorry for people who do not labor in other people's lives in that way because they don't know the kind of joy that Paul experienced. I believe the joy that Paul experienced when he heard that report, when he heard the Ephesians. Acts chapter 19 and Acts chapter 20 tells us that in Ephesus, Paul spent two years more than any other city. He spent laboring there. He said in chapter 20, he was there in tears and in in great trials. He would go from house to house, diligently teaching them the Word of God. Publicly, he said, proclaiming to them the Word of God. And then when he heard of their faith and he heard of their love for all the saints, it produced within Paul immeasurable joy and thanksgiving when he saw the fruits, when he saw what God was doing. And I realize there's a great principle here as Christians. Right now, if you're not actively involved in the spiritual well-being of another, Right now, if you are not laboring, deeply concerned, witnessing, discipling, praying, fasting over another's spiritual well-being, you are missing out on the greatest potential joy that you could ever know this side of heaven. Those words of the Apostle John ring in my ears. I have no greater joy than this to know my children are walking in the truth. To labor in a vineyard, to labor in a field, to labor in a soul, weeping over it, watering that soul with your tears before God, fasting, teaching them the word of God and waiting and waiting. And then see God begin to do a work is one of the most incredible things in all the world. We can learn a lesson from funerals. You know, when people go to funerals and they they always talk about how great of a person they are. There's there's always something behind that, and, and it's this. No assessment of a person's life, no assessment of a person's life can be made without considering the impact he or she has made on other people. Now think about that for a moment. When you come to the end of your life and an assessment is going to be made of your life, no assessment can be made without considering the impact you have had on other people's lives. And as Christians, we're talking about other people's spiritual lives. The alternative is to be so self-absorbed and so involved in yourself that you're never involved in other people's lives. And to be that way is to miss out on the greatest joy. And it's very possible that some of you have become 
so involved in your lives that you're missing out on one of the greatest joys known on the face of the earth. I am convinced of this, that God gives every believer a field, a sphere of influence, a place where they are to labor for, an area, a people or person where they are to make a spiritual impact and and have a spiritual concern for. Every believer has a field. Some people, God has given the world as their field. I think of men like MacArthur and Piper and these men who, who have international ministries. They have ministries going out and they are reaping in places all across the world. There are other people who have a field, a sphere of influence in a foreign field. When we went to Laos last year, we met a, a, a a group of people who their ministry was going in and out of Laos bringing gospel material. And one of the young ladies, Jennifer, has now decided that she is actually not going to just keep going back into this closed country, but she has, has found a little village and she has planted herself there and she is going to live there. And that's going to be her field of influence where she is going to spend her life making known the gospel of Jesus Christ to these people. To some people, they have a church that's their sphere of influence. To others, they have jobs, co-workers, employees, employers that is their field of influence. Some have friends, family members, children, grandchildren. Whatever the sphere is, every Christian has a field. Now, the question is, are you laboring in it? The question is, are you pouring your life in to this field, to these people, to this person? Are you giving yourself to prayer? Are you giving yourself to fasting? Are you giving yourself to, to teaching them, to, to witnessing to them? For we find that's exactly the ministry of the Apostle Paul. He gave himself to these people. His life was, was wrapped up in their spiritual well-being. And when he saw fruit, it produced within him the greatest joy he had ever known. And he could say with a whole heart, with clear conscience, I thank God without ceasing for you. I mean, after all, here's Paul. He suffered shipwreck. He's been in prison. He's been beaten. He's been sleepless nights. He's been robbed. He's been hungry. He's labored day in and day out. But then to hear that those laborers are bringing forth spiritual fruit produced within him great joy and thanksgiving. Like I said earlier, I feel sorry for people who aren't laboring in their field of influence. I feel sorry for people who are not giving themselves to this ministry, for every believer has this ministry. It may be, mothers, your children. Fathers, it may be your family. It may be your place of employment. But are you giving yourself to it? Are you laboring in it? Psalms 126 gives a great promise here. Those who sow in tears will reap in joyful shouting. Do you see the joyful shouting on the part of the Apostle Paul? Acts chapter 20 said he had been sowing in Ephesus with tears, night and day, 
And when he heard, when he saw the spiritual fruit, it resulted in great joy and thanksgiving in his life. I want to challenge you this morning to give yourself to the spiritual ministry. I want to challenge you as I close this morning when Paul says that he gives thanks without ceasing, that this isn't hyperbole. That to, to reap from, from the labor that you've been sowing, to be able to eat from some of the harvest is some of the sweetest things that you could ever do on the face of the earth. I mean, it's, I remember Daryl. I always like to point to Daryl. Daryl's an evangelist. He's not a public speaker. He's not anything. He's an evangelist. He's out on his job and he's, he's telling people about Christ. I remember going, he took me hunting with a friend of his that he had been witnessing to for years, Dave. The guy was lost. He was a religious man who was lost. He was involved in a dead church and he had all these religious works that he was relying upon. And year after year, Daryl talks to him. I know in Daryl's heart when, when Dave came to Christ and was truly regenerated, it's one of the greatest joys in all the world. I want to challenge you this morning in closing. I, I, I knew I wouldn't get to Paul's request. But as we look at Paul's response, I want to challenge you this morning. That if you're not sowing in the spiritual labor, if you are not giving yourself into your field of influence that you do so today. That examine your life. Have you become so self-absorbed? Have you become so entangled with the things of the world that you've forgotten your field of influence? I want to ask you today, I want to challenge you today to give yourself to the spiritual well-being of other people. In your place of employment, in your family it may just be one person, but give yourself to it. To sow in their lives. So that you, in time, may reap of this joy. And secondly, this morning, for those of you that are sowing. Those of you that are laboring. Mothers, those of you that are weeping over your children. I want to challenge you with this. Keep on sowing. Keep on laboring. Galatians chapter 6, verse 9 says, Don't grow weary in well-doing, for in due time we will reap if we don't faint. I want to encourage you this morning to give yourself anew to the spiritual well-being of those in your parish, those in your field of influence. Give yourself for their spiritual well-being so that you can know this joy of the Apostle uh, Paul, this joy of the Apostle Peter who says, again, a remarkable statement, I know no greater joy than this than to know my children walk in the truth. He's talking about his spiritual children. Those children that he had begat in spiritual labors. Paul said, after hearing of the faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, and their love for all the saints, he could not stop thanking God for them. I hope you covet that experience. I hope you begin to, to look at the ministry that God has given you. Look at the field and begin to labor in it. Asking God for that harvest so that you can experience that joy. 
Will you stand with me for closing prayer? Father, it is truly a great privilege to be workers in your field. Father, to experience and to know the joy of seeing you work in the lives of other people because of the ministry that you gave is truly unparalleled joy. Father, I know that there are some out here this morning who have been praying for a father, a mother, a son, a daughter, a friend. There have been there are some here this morning that are laboring in ministries evangelizing, sharing Christ with people who are deaf and blind to the gospel and want to give up, want to start picking up the hobby again in the garage and just quit having to spend themselves so entirely for what seems to be thankless work. Oh, Lord, I pray that those that are in this situation that they might have an opportunity to taste the fruit that the Apostle Paul got to taste. He spent two years of his life laboring in Ephesus, created what the Scripture says, no small disturbance, was almost torn limb to limb in the great theater, the great uh, arena where the entire city had gathered and chanted and wanted to kill him. And yet now he could hear that his work was not in vain. And he could rejoice. I pray that you would strengthen the hands of the workers here this morning. I pray that you would instill in the hearts of those who maybe have gotten off track, who have set down the, the implements and have become entangled again in the world, that you would remind them of their sphere of influence the people, the persons in their life that they should give themselves to, body, soul, heart, for the spiritual progress, for their salvation, for their development. Lord, I pray that we in this church will experience this no greater joy. Lord, may you bless your word this morning. May this enhance our love for one another. May we be united as a body cohesive in the spirit. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.